Hello, I'm novelist and critic Tim Lucas. I've written extensively about Eddie Constantine in past issues of my magazine video Watchdog, and in the introduction to Tanya Constantine's new Feral House memoir, Out of My Father's Shadow. And it's a great pleasure and honor for me to guide you through this viewing of Eddie's best-known, yet most atypical film, Jean-Luc Godard's science fiction classic, Alphaville. Alphaville is subtitled A Strange Adventure of Lemmy Caution. Even at the time of its release, perhaps especially at the time of its release, most American moviegoers were unfamiliar with Lemmy Caution, so they might well have assumed that this was also his very first adventure. However, to labor under this misunderstanding is to deprive the film of one of its most important dimensions. Since 1953, Lemmy Caution, as played by Eddie Constantine, had been an iconic figure of French pop culture, the James Bond of the French cinema. He was legend, and as the electronic brain Alpha 60 tells us as we settle into our seats, sometimes reality can be too complex to be conveyed by the spoken word. Legend remolds it into a form that can be spread all over the world. The sound of Lemmy's cigarette lighter was provided by a clapperboard, one of the film's many oral puns. Alphaville, made between Godard's other films, Une Femme Marie and Pierrot Le Fou, was shot in Paris without a formal script during the period of January 4th to February 14th, 1965. The budget was roughly equal to a mere $22,000. It's hard to believe, given these rough-and-ready origins, that a picture of such thought and lasting significance was fully assembled, post-produced, and being shown to audiences by May 5th, 1965, a prodigious rate of creation. This is one of cinema's rarest commodities, a science fiction film almost entirely devoid of special effects. Instead, we get shots like this, the nocturnal illumination of a roadside, which evoke in us larger ideas proposed by the narration, which is divided between Lemmy Caution and the voice of Alpha 60, the ruling computer brain behind Alphaville. By shooting a film set in the distant future in the documentary-like settings of 1965 Paris, Godard was able to produce a feature-length frisson of alienation, and with the philosophical aside that no matter how much things may change, they will stay the same. This location was an actual hotel, the Hotel Scribe, located at 1 Rue Scribe in Paris. It was in this very building that the first public screenings of the cinematograph were exhibited in the 19th century. Lemmy registers under an alias. Le Figaro is the name of the oldest continuing newspaper published in France, active since 1826. Pravda is the Russian analogy founded in 1912 and formerly the official newspaper of the Communist Party. In just two words, Godard has staged a multi-million dollar miracle, the cinema's first union of these historically divisive nations. Cameraman Raoul Coutard shot this film with small, mobile 35mm cameras, compact enough to share this elevator ride with Eddie Constantine. Outside, rather than inside the lift, notice that the ride up and the entire walk to room 344 is achieved in a single shot. This is Valérie Boisgel playing Beatrice, the second seductress third class. 
Born in 1946, this was an early screen role for her. She mostly worked in erotic films. The odd horror picture, like Claude Moulot's The Blood Rose, 1970, and as a director of theatrical productions, she died in 2014, aged 68. You may remember that Godard's first feature, Abu de Souf, Breathless, 1959, opens with a dedication to Monogram Pictures, a minor American studio known for cranking out low-budget B-pictures in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Monogram's roster of stars included Sidney Toller's Charlie Chan, The Bowery Boys, and their earlier work as The East Side Kids, Boris Karloff's Mr. Wong, Joe Palooka, The Rough Riders, The Cisco Kid, The Trailblazers, and numerous films starring Bela Lugosi, Mantan Moreland, and Frankie Darrow. In this dedication, one can see the promise of this picture, which was Godard's ninth picture in six years. This film represents the cinema's first feature-length fusion of film noir and science fiction, there was at least one short prior example, Chuck Jones' Warner Brothers cartoon Racket Squad, made in 1956. Godard was a devotee and was likely aware of the cartoon. This fusion of genres was proposed by the pun in the cartoon's title, which was a goof on the title of the television series Racket Squad, which ran for 98 episodes between 1951 and 1953. This hotel provides its clientele with everything they might need to regulate their restlessness and desires. Tranquilizers, a hot bath, companionship, and a bedside table Bible. The Bible in Alphaville is not what we might expect, as we will learn later. Oui, je dois réfléchir. Je vais vous aider, monsieur. This is an AMI Continental Jukebox, one of the format's masterpieces of design. In 1962, AMI Continental introduced the stereophonic jukebox, the panoramic curvature of its menu, the acrylic dome above its turntable, lended a futuristic look. It's one of the eccentricities of the 1960s that futurism played such a major role in its overall design perhaps indicative of a Cold War concern that we might not reach the future we were actively imagining. So why not enjoy it now? In Eddie Constantine's earlier Lemmy Caution films, the fistfights were a major part of their appeal to audiences of the 1950s. For this film, Jean-Luc Godard chose to deconstruct these narrative highlights, in this case diffusing its impact by removing the usually amplified sound effects, and giving prominence to this fine-living instrumental track by composer Paul Mizraki, whose insistent score otherwise lends this film an imposing air of menace. Lemmy's camera is an AGFA 35mm camera with flash cube, a convenience developed by Sylvania Electric Products and introduced by Eastman Kodak in 1965. It looks cheap now, but in 1965 this was cutting-edge stuff. 
Lemmy's narration tells us that the name of this seductress is Beatrice, which derives from the Latin Beatrice with an X, which means she who makes happy. So there is ironic humor in the choice of name and also likely reference to the muse of the 12th century poet Dante Alighieri. In this film, Lemmy Caution seems to experience the love at first sight experienced by Dante when he first met Beatrice Portinari, a galvanizing meeting that led to much poetry examining the experience and emotion of love from multiple angles. In the dialogue here, Lemmy refers to himself as a veteran of the Battle of Guadalcanal, which took place in 1942-43, to and elsewhere he mentions leaving the Outer Territories in 1964 and somehow using his Ford Galaxy, actually a 1964 Ford Mustang, to traverse the distance to Alphaville in just a few hours. Lemmy, who is Secret Agent 003, has been sent to Alphaville to follow up on the disappearances of three prior agents sent there to capture or kill Professor Von Braun, played by Swiss actor Howard Vernon, whose Alpha 60 master computer has enslaved its people. These three predecessors were Dick Tracy, Guy Leclerc, and Henry Dixon. Dick Tracy is the comic strip detective created by Chester Gould. Guy Leclerc is the French name for the Alex Raymond comic strip hero Flash Gordon. And Henry Dixon is a copyright-skirting allusion to Harry Dixon, the hero of a long-running series of pulp novels originated in the early 1900s. Thus, Lemmy's failed antecedents are all of legendary stature and present him as a next step in their evolutionary process. Natasha von Braun is played by the exquisite Danish actress, dancer, and novelist Anna Karina, born in 1940. Lemmy's initial meeting with Natasha, the beautiful daughter of Professor von Braun, pays homage to the meeting between Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall in Howard Hawks' To Have and Have Not, made in 1944. Light, the essence of their first encounter, develops through the narrative to achieve analogies of free thought and illumination. Light is literally what Lemmy Caution brings to Natasha's life. In fact, his surname, Caution, will later be phonetically linked to consciousness. Anna Karina, of course, was the wife and muse of writer-director Jean-Luc Godard from 1960 through 1965, a span covering the films La Petite Soldat, A Woman is a Woman, for which she won the Best Actress Award at the Berlin Film Festival, Vive Sa Vie, Band of Outsiders, Alphaville, Pierrot Les Fous, and various shorts in between. She and Eddie Constantine first worked together on Suite with Godard in the Chaplinesque film within a film in Agnes Varda's Clio from 5 to 7, made in 1964. Constantine was then tapped by Godard to star in his segment on Sloth, made for the romantic comedy anthology The Seven Deadly Sins, made later that same year. In it, Constantine played someone outwardly indistinguishable from himself, but otherwise very unlike himself, an actor much too lazy to be bothered by the many opportunities for seduction placed in his path. A delightful dry run for Alphaville, you might say. Dans un ministère. J'y vais. Venez si vous voulez. This initial interview between Natasha and Lemmy, or rather Ivan Johnson, is shot in a very direct, mutual, even intimate framing. But Natasha's gestures are the opposite of those implied by her words. 
This suggests a disconnection between her outward and inner lives, a disconnection that Lemmy will trace to her relationship to the spoken and written word. The scene holds on Lemmy's face long enough for the film to imply that we are meant to identify more with Natasha. His words are cordial and warm, yet we are made to feel under his interrogation. This is just the beginning of a fantastic sustained sequence that continues uncut for a full 3 minutes 17 seconds, just two seconds shy of the famous opening shot of Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. Mon père me racontait comment c'était. Maintenant, il est défendu d'y penser. On vous donne souvent l'heure de rester avec des inconnus. Oui, c'est mon travail. Quelquefois, ça doit être agréable. Pourquoi Ça n'a jamais fait la coupe. Quoi Il n'y a jamais quelqu'un qui tombe amoureux de vous. Amoureux Lemmy is surprised to discover that the word love is unknown to Natasha, and he is not altogether sure if she is being truthful to him. At this point, the two characters withdraw into themselves, leaving room for Godard to introduce absolute silence, which is at least something shared. It is soon replaced by Lemmy's narration. D'ailleurs, c'est toujours comme ça. On ne comprend jamais rien, et un soir, on finit par en mourir. A similar quotation, Find what you love and let it kill you, is often attributed to the poet Charles Bukowski, but it is yet to be traced to anything he actually wrote. Dans quelle direction vous allez? 12 Rue Enrico Fermi references the 20th century physicist who invented the Chicago Pile 1, the world's first nuclear reactor, while Boulevard Heisenberg honors Werner Heisenberg, the German theoretical physicist remembered as one of the pioneers of quantum mechanics. In the reality of 1964, Paris consisted of streets named after men of words, like the Rue Victor Hugo. In today's world, Rue Enrico Fermi is a fact located near the Rhine River in Villiers-Bonne, northeast of Lyon. Son sourire et ses petites dents pointues me rappelaient à un de ces vieux films de vampires qu'on projetait autrefois dans les musées du cinéma. Unlike the subtitle you're seeing, Lemmy actually says that Natasha's pointed teeth reminded him of the vampire films they used to show in the old Cinerama museums which flings the story a bit further into the future, Cinerama being a futuristic three-paneled process only introduced in 1952 and nearing the end of its popularity in 1965. Lemmy's likening her smile to that of a vampire foreshadows the revelation that Professor von Braun is an alias for the renegade scientist Professor Leonard Nosferatu. It's time to delve into a bit of the history of our film's hero, Lemmy Caution. British author Peter Cheney introduced Lemmy Caution in a 1936 novel, This Man is Dangerous, 
17 years before Ian Fleming published the first James Bond novel. It became an instant bestseller, and Cheney's first two novels are said to have sold close to 2 million copies within that first year. He wrote many other books, including an entire other series featuring a detective named Slim Callahan, but he would write another 10 Lemmy Caution thrillers. They are Poison Ivy, Dames Don't Care, Can Ladies Kill, Don't Get Me Wrong, You'd Be Surprised, Your Deal, My Darling, Never a Dull Moment, You Can Always Duck, I'll Say She Does, and G-Man at the Yard. Most of these books were published in America, but their jackets never gave any hint that they were part of a series, and they did not enjoy the success here that they found abroad. This may be explained by the fact that Lemmy Caution was an American G-Man, an agent for the FBI, filtered through the fantasy of a British pulp novelist. Americans who read these books, or attempt to, immediately pick up on their peculiar artifice, which is far more based in hard-boiled noir fiction and cinema than in first-hand knowledge or research. Lemmy Caution first came to the screen in a 1952 film starring John Van Drelen, who wasn't convincing as an American G-man. The need for a new actor coincided with the arrival in Paris of Eddie Constantine, who had followed his successful ballerina wife there, between 1953 and 1963, Constantine would play Caution in seven different features, nearly all of them directed by Bordery. Were Caution to fail in this mission like his predecessors, his successor might well be James Bond. Ian Fleming published his first Bond novel, Casino Royale, only two years after Cheney's death, in the same year that Constantine's first Caution film, an adaptation of Poison Ivy called Le Mont Verdegris, was released. It's possible that Fleming saw it during its initial release. The film features a scene in which its sleek, white tuxedoed villain, Rudy Saltiera, ties together Caution and his leading lady, Carlotta Delarue, played by Dominique Wilms, and drags them at a high speed behind his yacht, a situation that, by some coincidence, also occurs in the second Bond novel, Live and Let Die, published a year later, in 1954. In another odd coincidence between the two writers, Peter Cheney died at the age of 55, Ian Fleming at the age of 56 in 1964, the year the Bond film franchise really caught fire. So neither of them really lived to see the full flowering of what they had created. Interestingly, the films share some of the same dislocated feel as the novels, with Constantine playing this secret agent with anything but a covert personality. His Lemmy Caution is a supremely outgoing figure whose gregariousness almost borders on the obnoxious. He's brash, boorish, hard-drinking, quick to fight, and even quicker to womanize. When he reports to his version of M, the first order of business is for his superior to pour him a tall whiskey to help him absorb all the fine details of his next assignment. Lemmy is a bit of a cartoon, at once a down-to-earth hero for the average Joe, and a blatant satire of America's overseas image as an incorrigible meddler in foreign affairs who manages to have a few while he's at it. I assume Godard was drawn to Lemmy Caution and Eddie Constantine because he was a living icon of the French popular cinema, and as they worked together, there was friction between the two men because Godard was less concerned with Eddie Constantine as an actor than he was with the image and iconography of Eddie Constantine and Lemmy Caution. 
His original title for this project was Tarzan vs. IBM, which indicates that he saw Lemmy Caution as a kind of caveman in contrast to the completely unnatural, man-made, and artificial world of Alphaville. This is a shabby hotel in what the film will later describe as one of its forbidden zones where people go to kill themselves. This beautiful blonde lady in the background is Krista Lang, a German actress born in 1943. A year after making this film in 1967, she would marry filmmaker Samuel Fuller, whose Shock Corridor was chosen by Godard as one of the 10 best films of 1965. The film now introduces that marvelous actor Akim Tamirov in the role of Lemmy's missing predecessor, Henry Dixon. I should note that the fellow who is reading aloud from this book about the 18th, 19th century French sculptor James Pradier, which I would think to be a forbidden book, appears to be writer-actor-director Jacques Robiole in an uncredited role. You may remember him as one of the two patriarchal hippie vampires in Jean Roland's Shiver of the Vampires, 1971. In fact, the actor who played the other patriarchal hippie vampire in that film, Michel Delahaye, appears later in this film also as the assistant of Professor von Braun. Robioles appears to be using his wardrobe to honor Dennis Weaver's deranged hotel manager in Touch of Evil, a film in which Akim Tamirov co-starred. The Russian-born Tamirov had been active in film since the 1930s and worked for a broad array of filmmakers from all over the world, everyone from Ruben Mamoulian and Joseph von Sternberg to Preston Sturgis and Jules Dassin. But he's now principally remembered for his few films with Orson Welles. I've already noted some of this film's debts to Touch of Evil, but there is also much about the look of Alphaville that I feel is very much indebted to Welles' adaptation of Franz Kafka's The Trial, made in 1962. This sordid hotel might be called the Hotel Suicide. It's a place where the locals of Alphaville go, or are sent, when they feel ready to check out. The hotel manager goads Henry Dixon to hurry and kill himself because his room is needed, Alphaville's version of efficient management. This building, a kind of IBM card made of concrete, glass, and steel, is the Esso Tower, completed in 1963, it was one of the defining buildings in a new business district west of Paris known as La Défense. Alas, futurism never lasts forever. It was torn down in 1993 and replaced by the office skyscraper known as Tour Total. Godard uses the Esso Tower for frequent cutaways to help bridge different takes in the film. This extended dialogue scene between Eddie Constantine and Akim Tamirov, two agents separated by a gulf of perhaps 20 years, is one of the dramatic highlights of the picture. Bear in mind that none of this was scripted per se. Both men would have been given notes by Godard to work into the scene, telling them what needed to be accomplished. I think they pull it off brilliantly. 
When Lemmy asks Henry why their agency stopped receiving communications from him and the others, Dick Tracy and Guy Leclerc, Henry merely chuckles, but the direct close-up of Timirov shows a hero gone completely to seed and implies all manner of unspeakable moral and sensual disarmament. In short, these other heroes, these legends, were corrupted by Alphaville, which these two agents proceed to summarize as a place where probability rules and which grinds all free thinking, all inspiration, all creativity, anything random and unpredictable, into the dirt. The dirt that cynical companies trust we all have in common. This swinging light bulb may suggest to us an homage to Psycho, but in the context of Alphaville, it is really showing us how light may exist and be taken for granted, even in the most sordid places, even in the neon displays of these cutaways, even in the filthiest places like Henry's room, this film shows light to be not only present but dominant, whether we take notice or not. This being a French film, and above all a Godard film, we must remember that light is equal to Lumiere. Perhaps Godard was saying, in effect, that Lumiere, the father of cinema, has given us reason to live, to strive, to incline toward a more poetical way to exist. It is a lesson that Henry Dixon has ceased to observe in favor of what he calls his sordid little secrets. He's chosen the concrete over the theoretical. He has forgotten the meaning of the outlawed word, why, or pretends to. There is a suggestion here that Professor von Braun was present and possibly in charge of the design of the first nuclear weapon at the Los Alamos National Laboratory, which led to the detonation of a plutonium inversion device, the first nuclear weapon, at Hornada del Muerto on July 16, 1945. Of course, the name von Braun is a reference to Werner von Braun, the German-born rocket engineer who worked for Germany's Nazi regime until the end of the war at which time he was assimilated into the planning that went into the formation of the United States space program. A number of the basic concepts of aerospace exploration, such as the launch pad and the space station, were the contributions of von Braun. The fact that von Braun changed sides makes him an emblematic reference point in a story about agents who have shifted loyalties. At this point, Krista Lang returns to the picture, and if you look closely, you'll see that she picks Henry's pocket before she has anything to do with him. Today, Krista Lang Fuller is a Facebook friend of mine, and she generously agreed to share with me some of her memories of working on this picture in an email. She told me, and I quote, Jean-Luc had seen me in Claude Chabrol's film Codename Tiger, in which I am the stupid, always drunk, blonde girlfriend of the gangster played by Mario David. The reviews were terrific, and Chazal, a critic for Francois, ended his review with, In closing, there is Krista Lang, who, in an almost silent part, leaves a great impression. He ended by saying, She is like a tigress. 
Chabrol was warm-hearted and kind, funny, and a joy to work with. He acted as my agent with Jean-Luc. Jean-Luc asked Claude if he could write in a part for me in Alphaville and if he could meet me to talk about his film. We met in the Café Montaigne, in the Avenue Montaigne. Jean-Luc told me the whole movie and told me that, of course, his wife Anna Karina would be the star. Anna was shooting a film with my friend, the late Maurice Ronet, in Spain, something called Le Verleur de Tibidabo. Jean-Luc went into a big tirade then about how difficult he found it to understand women. He talked and talked and talked. End quote. There is more to share from Krista, but for now I need to point out that Henry's heart seems to have exploded at the moment he exclaimed to the fantasy proposed by Krista, I love you. In Alphavia, love is one of the forbidden words, but this moment shows us that it is possible to live under a constriction of law so long that even the most benign, unspeakable words can become a deadly weapon. However foolishly, Henry Dixon found something to love in this angel-faced thief, and it has killed him. Asked to compare Godard's directorial technique to those of other directors she'd worked for, Krista Lang Fuller told me, quote, Vadim shot pretty slow. He could afford it on a big budget. Chabrol was fast and inventive at the same time, wonderful to work with since he left you to improvise, yet knew exactly what he wanted from the performance. Jean-Luc was not as open-minded as Claude, but he left me all the freedom to improvise that hilarious scene where I had to pickpocket the great Akim Tamirov before we get intimate. He shot fast and economical, end quote. She also remembers that, quote, Jean-Luc kept me on the set for three days. We shot in some dinky hotel in the 9th arrondissement. It was freezing, but the crew was terrific, and I kept a good souvenir, meaning memory, of the shoot. Jean-Luc even had a broad smile on his face and did not act as neurotic as when we first met. I was sitting in a cafe months later, and the delicious Anna Karina came to my table and told me that she just saw the scenes I did with Akim Tamirov and that they were great. End quote. The book that Lemmy finds concealed under the pillow of his defeated colleague is a 1939 Gallimard edition of Capital de la Douleur, Capital of Pain or Sorrow, as the subtitles have it. This was a book of collected poems by Paul Eluard, one of the founders of the Surrealist movement. First published in 1926, Capital de la Douleur collected four poetry chapbooks published earlier separately. They were called Repetitions, Dying But Without Dying, The Minor Laws, and New Poems. The fact that this exact printing coincided with the war and looked so roughly handled, so well-loved, as booksellers like to say, speaks eloquently of someone's reliance on its vision during turbulent times. Here Lemmy is going to the Institute of General Semantics, which was filmed in various offices and spaces inside the Maison de la ORTF, at the time the newly completed headquarters of French national radio and television, it was under construction between 1956 and 1963. The building still exists, but is now called Radio France, Société Nationale de Radiodiffusion, a name that Godard probably likes even more. 
In the general look of these areas that Lemmy passes through, we can see blatant visual references to Orson Welles' film of the trial and its most notable antecedent, King Vidor's 1928 film, The Crowd. In Chris Dark's book, Alphaville, in the French Film Guide series, he opens a passage with a quote from Peter Wallen, architecture in film is never just itself, and then proceeds to say, and I quote, and this is especially true of Alphaville. Alphaville is almost entirely made up of architectural non-places. The city is a patchwork of transitional zones, corridors, staircases, offices, hotel rooms, liberally interspersed with their characteristic signage, arrows, numbers, neon. But the narrative space that Godard sculpts from details abstracted from the built environment is a labyrinth, warped and uncanny. The coarsely distorted, croaking electronic voice of Alpha 60 heard throughout the film is said to have been the voice of a man who had lost his larynx to cancer but was given the ability to speak by a mechanical box. In my research I also found a rumor being circulated that it was actually the voice of the great French essayist and theoretician Roland Barthes speaking through such a box, but this is not true. Godard had, in fact, approached Bart to appear in Alphaville. Some sources say to play himself. Others say it was to be the role of a scientist, but he refused the invitation, concerned that he might appear ridiculous on screen. I personally suspect that he might have found himself speaking at least some of the narrations spoken by Alpha 60. Sidebar on our star Eddie Constantine. He was born Israel Constantine in Los Angeles, California on October 29, 1913, not 1917, as is commonly cited. When he was in his late teens, his father sent him to Vienna to study singing for five years at the Vienna Conservatory, but that wasn't the sort of singing that really appealed to Eddie, whose nickname was a less ethnic alternative to Izzy. He left the world of opera, jerking sodas, washing cars, and most seriously, hanging around the MGM lot, hoping to get noticed. Eddie could pour on the charm when he wanted to, and he made friends easily. He befriended actor Francho Tone, a man who, by all reports, did not befriend easily, and was soon giving singing lessons to Tone's wife at that time, MGM star Joan Crawford. According to Eddie's family, he and Joan had lots of alone time and became lovers, remaining close until her death in 1977, though they both went their separate ways romantically. At Crawford's probable recommendation, Eddie joined MGM's 60-member vocal chorus, lending background voice to such Nelson Eddie Jeanette MacDonald musicals as Rosemarie, 1936, and Maytime, 1937, he also landed a bit part as a singing sailor in the MGM musical Born to Dance, 1936, starring James Stewart and Eleanor Powell. He's in the film's first five minutes. Blink, and you'll miss him. He wouldn't make another movie for 18 years. MGM felt that Eddie didn't have a face for musicals. Frustrated by his inability to advance in Hollywood, he relocated to New York City in 1938, he was a dancer in the original stage production of Pal Joey with Gene Kelly, which ran for 374 performances, during which time he augmented his earnings as a Radio City Music Hall singer, also singing on radio and record with the Lynn Murray Singers and the Ray Charles Singers. It was during this period that Eddie met and married his first wife, Helene Musel, 
a ballet dancer, also performing at Radio City. There was a musician union strike in 1942-43, which kept many singers and bands from issuing new records. Frank Sinatra wasn't having any of that, so he released a series of best-selling a cappella 78s in 1943, backed by the Bobby Tucker singers, featuring Guess Who? Eddie Constantine was one of the voices heard on those records. It's interesting that Eddie's collaboration with Sinatra was anti-unionist, because in his private life he was a sympathizer and probable member of the American Communist Party. Eddie and his family left the United States in 1947, the year of the Hollywood blacklist, but even so, Eddie's children, Lemmy and Tanya, insist that the probings of the House Committee on Un-American Activities into the private and political lives of show business figures had nothing to do with that decision. They went because his wife, Helene, had received an invitation to join the celebrated Ballet Russe. It was her dream, and more lucrative than anything Eddie had going to be continued. In an article for Cahiers du Cinema, published in the month filming began, Godard announced Alphaville as, quote, a film of adventure, of art and essay, with Eddie Constantine in the leading role, end quote. He continued by saying, quote, the film, which is as yet untitled, will be shot under the usual conditions to which this actor is accustomed, end quote. In truth, those conditions would be anything but. According to Eddie's daughter, Tanya, who recorded a popular single with him in 1955, Eddie had no clue as to what Godard was hoping to achieve with this film, and his place in it was a source of constant discomfort and aggravation. He was accustomed to being treated like a star, like a handsome leading man, and to having his opinions heard and respected. As a favor to Tanya, Eddie had arranged for her husband at that time, named Lorenzo, to work as Godard's third assistant on the picture. Eddie didn't think very much of Lorenzo, but he had anticipated that having a family member on the set might give him some leverage. He was wrong. As Tanya told me, quote, Eddie was miserable during the shooting of the film. He kept complaining about how Godard had no respect for him, and he complained endlessly that Lorenzo was at Jean-Luc's beck and call rather than at his, Lorenzo kept telling him his job was to tend to Godard, but Eddie did not like that one bit, so there was a lot of tension. Mainly, Eddie hated himself in that film. He said he looked ugly, and that gave him a lot of stress. After all, he was hoping Alphaville would help his career get back on track, so he figured if he looked so ugly in it, no one would ever want to use him again. He thought he looked so bad because Godard had harsh lighting on him, with that harsh lighting, Eddie's pockmarked skin stood out a lot. In his other films, he was always able to have more control over the lighting because most of the directors followed his lead. But Godard had a very different view, end quote. By the way, this is the exterior of the Maison de la ORTF. To continue, in her new book, Out of My Father's Shadow, from Feral House, Tanya writes that early on in the film's production, Eddie made the mistake of telling Godard that he was usually filmed from the right, that this angle was his best side. Godard's response was immediate and firm. Oh, then you'll be photographed from the left from now on. On another occasion, he told Godard, The light can't come down on me from above. It should be straight in front of me. I look better like that. Godard's response well then, the light is going to come down from above from now on and never from straight on. <laughs> 
There are many reasons why Godard might have taken this stance, none of them having anything to do with being sadistic. It may have been a matter of affirming his own autonomy as director. He may have wanted Eddie to know that he was there to be used as an instrument, not to dictate terms. He may have also wanted to explore Eddie Constantine from a new direction, to find his points of vulnerability, to make him less of a star and more of an actor. And Eddie Constantine does make an impression in this film that he makes in no other, with the exception of possibly his much later collaboration with Godard, Germany Year 90, 90, shown in 1991. He looks like a golem, a man made of stone. His lined and pockmarked face is cold as the surface of the moon. Anyone with vanity would scream to be described in this way, but Lemmy Caution is a secret agent. He's a man who withholds himself professionally, especially where his emotions are concerned. He is assigned to this job for the very reason that he's hard as steel, emotionally barren. But it is here, in this barren city, that he finds love. This actor playing Professor Von Braun's assistant is Michel Delahaye. I mentioned him earlier when I spotted Jacques Robiols. Delahaye had previously appeared in Godard's segment of Rogopag and also Band of Outsiders, and he enjoyed a long career in lead and marginal roles, including the Grandmaster in Jean Roland's The Nude Vampire and the voice of the limousine in Holy Motors. To continue the story of Eddie Constantine, once in Paris, Eddie started pounding the ruse, singing American standards in any bar or night spot that would have him. He remembered that some places paid him with just a sandwich. Then in 1949, he met Edith Piaf. Eddie said, and I quote, She picked me out of a crowd. She saw something in me, some kind of star quality that attracted her, and said, Come here. I went into her dressing room and stayed eight months, end quote. They had a steady fling while co-starring in a successful stage musical, La Petite Lily, and he was signed by Mercury Records to cut his first solo recordings. Eddie's fling with Piaf ended as the play did, and she drifted into a new relationship with Charles Aznavour. Between jobs, Eddie got a tip from a girl named Giselle, who sold him his daily newspapers, and who sometimes slipped in the current issue of Variety when he couldn't afford it. She'd heard that a producer named Maurice Stoloff was making a picture in Egypt and was looking for an American actor for one of the lead parts. That picture turned out to be Egypt by Three, made in 1953. He described it as, quote, a real mud of a picture, directed by a Russian, starring an American, produced in Egypt, edited in Paris, and dubbed in London, end quote. Well, maybe it was a mutt, but it's how he came to the attention of writer-producer-director Bernard Bordery, who saw on the screen the Lemmy Caution he was looking for. 
The casting of Swiss actor Howard Vernon as Professor von Braun was also quite discerning of Godard, in addition to being one of the most accomplished villains of European cinema, best known for his performances in such films as Jean-Pierre Melville's Le Silence de la Mer, Burgess Meredith's The Man on the Eiffel Tower, Fritz Lang's The Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabuza, and Fred Zinnemann's The Day of the Jackal, he was also an actor who did not take himself at all seriously, who was willing to work in the most outre and bizarre films imaginable, starring in such films as Roger Vadim's Vice and Virtue, Henri Dequan's Atomic Agent, Pierre Chevalier's Orloff Against the Invisible Man, Jean-Pierre Junet's Delicatessen, and many, many films by the Spanish maverick filmmaker Jesus Franco, which required him to play everything from Count Dracula to a doddering, dirty old man to a black-faced, grass-skirt-wearing, spear-carrying, jungle native. But most importantly to this film, he had also played Rudy Saltiera, the suave villain to Eddie Constantine's Lemmy Caution, in the first Caution adventure, Le Monde Verdigris, Poison Ivy. So when we see the two of them in this scene of open opposition, we're meant to see a shade of classic French film history, an opposition that reached back more than a decade. This elevator fight also shows Godard having fun by removing all contact, all real violence, from an obligatory fist fight. This shot skips over Natasha, but soon returns to her. As she denies showing any emotion in response to Lemmy's beating, Godard and his cinematographer Raoul Coutard remove the background lighting to delineate the tear on Anna Karina's face, perhaps visible only in a place where she isolates her emotions from the surrounding world. We now return to the Esso Tower, which we saw before as an ominous facade, but without having the reason for its appearance explained. It's now explained as Alpha 60 headquarters, but it's also more than that. The building is Alpha 60 itself, whose ravaged voice punctuates this corridor with announcements, not of which rooms are available or unavailable, but which rooms are free or occupied. As Godard has continued to show, as recently as 2014's Goodbye to Language, he has a pronounced interest in exploring the values of words and the information we often subconsciously acquire through these words, rather than through the objects given these arbitrary artificial names. Yvonne Johnson. Notice here that we have an interrogation being conducted by the film's two narrators, and this is important to notice, because Godard is not endorsing Lemmy's version of the story any more than he is giving Alpha 60 his approval. This film wants us to determine our own sense of truth from the information it gives us. The truth of this particular situation seems to reside primarily in the choreography of the dangling microphones, which maneuver around Lemmy's head, much like those aquatic ballerinas in the previous scene, and most importantly in the fluctuating light of the questioning, black when the questions are directed, 
and illuminated during the answers. Mind you, at least some of what Lemmy says during the illuminated passages are known to be untrue, and yet some of the questions directed at him seem to prompt answers that are too important to his humanity to lie about. Je vais maintenant vous poser des questions test par mesure de sécurité. Non, allez-y. Vous arrivez des pays extérieurs. Qu'avez-vous éprouvé en traversant les espaces galaxiques Le silence de ces espaces infinis m'a effrayé. Quel est le privilège des morts Ne plus mourir. Savez-vous ce qui transforme la nuit en lumière La poésie. When Lemmy acknowledges that the silence of infinite space frightened him, he initiates a thematic thread that will be completed later, one acknowledging that the space between people is analogous to the void one intuits in the merciless emptiness of outer space. Poetry, which we might define as the impressionistic, idiosyncratic use of language, denied its prosaic meaning and entrusted wholly to the artistic license of the poet, is one of the known ways of bridging this void. In the words of Paul Eluard's poem, Liberté, and I quote, By the power of the word, I regain my life. I was born to know you and to name you. Liberty. End quote. Alpha 5, the given identity of this electronic inquisitor, responds to Lemmy's ambiguities with an ambiguity of its own. It grants his freedom, but at the same time, it directs him to report to the control center. Pour l'instant, vous êtes libre. Je voudrais que vous visitiez mes installations de contrôle. As Jean-Luc Godard told Sam Lesner, a reporter writing for the Los Angeles Times, quote, Alpha, as a word, has no Greek connotation. It's a shortening of the word alphabet, end quote. Indeed, though, alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. It has no inherent meaning as a word. It is through its placement in the alphabet that it has assumed use as a synonym for something of foremost quality or outstanding characteristics, such as alpha male. It was a use that initiated in the field of zoology. As Godard points out, the use of the word in the naming of this city at once acknowledges its self-styled preeminence, while also admitting its practice of subtracting from its Bibles those words found to encourage free thinking and free expression. In doing so, it is also chipping away at its own alpha status. As Godard once declared, every edit is a lie. Interviewed by Sam Lesner for the Los Angeles Times at the time of Alphaville's first U.S. showing at the 1965 New York Film Festival, 
Goddard said, and I quote, the experimental film is just now coming into its own because today's cinema experimenters are scientists who mix together ideas, personalities, and film components of unknown potentials just to see what exciting compounds we can produce, end quote. The most notable compounds in Alphaville are pop art, the myriad references available to the popular cinema, from Murnau's Nosferatu to Lemmy Caution, film noir, and the fusion of crime fiction and science fiction found in the early writings of William S. Burroughs, such as Naked Lunch, The Ticket That Exploded, and Nova Express, which it should be mentioned first appeared in France through the Olympia Press of Maurice Gerodius years before their publication in English-speaking countries. If you've seen David Cronenberg's film of Naked Lunch, you may remember William Lee's routines about being an undercover agent in an area called the Interzone, and this aspect of the original novel predates Alphaville by several years. Aspects of Burroughs' writing similarly influenced Cronenberg years before he adapted his work directly, such as in Videodrome, where James Woods plays a character analogous to Lemmy Caution, infiltrating a technology-driven underground in an effort to locate the untouchable provocateur at its core. As I mentioned earlier, Alphaville was playing in French cinemas just a few months after it completed production. In the wake of its premiere, it had showings at the Berlin International Film Festival, where it won the Golden Bear Award for Best Picture, the Festival dei Dui Mondi in Spoleto, Italy, an annual festivity for the sharing and discussion of the latest innovations in the arts and sciences, and the third annual International Science Fiction Film Festival in Trieste, where it played in competition with the likes of Jacques Turner's War Gods of the Deep, Don Sharp's Curse of the Fly, Freddie Francis's The Skull, and Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, Ishiro Honda's Degora the Space Monster, and Robert Gaffney's Frankenstein Meets the Space Monster. That's two, count them, two space monster pictures. Perhaps not too surprisingly, Alphaville followed in the footsteps of Roger Corman's X, The Man with X-Ray Eyes by winning the festival's coveted Golden Asteroid Award for Best Picture. Alphaville then had its Canadian premiere at the Montreal Film Festival in August, followed by its U.S. premiere at the New York Film Festival at Lincoln Center in September 1965. According to Sam Lesner, it played there under the slightly expanded title Alphaville or Tarzan vs. IBM, and it was shown in the company of such films as Arthur Penn's Mickey One, Satyajit Rai's The Lonely Woman, Georges Franju's Thomas the Imposter, Yerzy Skolomovsky's Walkover, and Godard's own Le Petit Soldat. The festival played to a highly select and fashionable audience who paid up to $17.50 for their tickets. That's $140 and change in today's money. Subtitled in English, the film was picked up for distribution in North America by Pathé Contemporary Films. It opened at New York City's Paris Theater a month later. It opened in the UK a month after that in November. Because of its science fiction nature, the film was reasoned to be of sufficient commercial potential to warrant an English dub, and this version went into a somewhat broader U.S. release by June 1966, playing at select first-run houses in major cities. 
Curiously, in secondary cities, the film seems to have played almost exclusively at university film clubs, French clubs, museums of natural history, and even adult film theaters. I suppose it's this particular scene that gave the film some currency in our so-called dirty movie palaces. This is actually one of the film's most impressive moments, a moment in which the absolute stillness of an image is more compelling than the action surrounding it. This random nude also implies there is a privileged niche for such aesthetics, reserved for those who attain the right security clearances within Alphaville's corrupt system. Black and white, bizarre, anti-star, anti-war, and deliciously peopled with pop art references, Alphaville was immediately embraced by young filmgoers of the time, the 1960s being nothing if not open-minded. Such was the interest in the film, Simon & Schuster issued a slim paperback in their modern film script series devoted to Alphaville. Since there was no formal script, the book was closer in definition to a transcription of the final cut. In the 1950s and early 1960s, Godard assembled an annual list of what he considered to be the year's best films. If his 1962 list is any indication, he was not afraid to include one of his own films if he felt it warranted such praise. Vive Sa Vie made his list that year, but he withdrew Alphaville from such consideration. Godard's ten favorite films of 1965 were Dovshenko's The Enchanted Desna, Ingmar Bergman's Winter Light, Claude Attant Lara's Journal of a Woman in White, John Ford's Young Cassidy, Sam Fuller's Shock Corridor, Edward Ludwig's Gunhawk, Nelson Pereira dos Santos' Vidas Secas, Pierre Ete's Yo-Yo, Robert Rosen's Lilith, and Miloš Forman's The Unworthy Old Peter and Pavla. However, more than 20 years later, when asked by the British newspaper The Independent to provide a list of his own 10 best science fiction films, Novelist J.G. Ballard, arguably science fiction's most important stylist of the late 20th century, placed Alphaville at the very top of the list, followed by Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, The Man Who Fell to Earth, Dark Star, Barbarella, Dr. Strangelove, Alien, The Incredible Shrinking Man, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and Solaris. Dans le monde, en analysant leur passé, on est automatiquement conduit à cette conclusion. Il faut donc les détruire, c'est-à-dire les transformer. One of the outstanding qualities of Alphaville is Godard's encouragement of the viewer to free his imagination from seeing only in the present tense. 
He doesn't do this with outlandish special effects, but by holding focus on aspects of documentary realism until the words underlying them in narration propel the imagination into a future or alternative tense. You can see this sort of thing at work in this sequence particularly, which shows us nothing of Paris at the time of filming that did not exist, that had not been planned at some point in a more distant past. Another science fiction film that promoted the same ideas, also French, was Chris Marker's short film La Jetée, a film consisting almost entirely of still images, made in 1963. A time travel story about an attempted escape from an inhospitable future into the past that is our present. The film's only gestures to futurism consist of artwork and the odd prop or costume. It is actually at its most futuristic when the protagonist steps into the magical realm that we recognize as our own mundane reality. A year or so after Alphaville, Godard was asked to contribute an episode to another anthology film, The Oldest Profession, which collected stories about prostitution through the ages. Godard's response was a 40-minute short entitled Anticipation, which closed the film because nothing else could possibly follow it. Anticipation serves as a wonderful coda to Alphaville as a man who goes by the names of Nick and John Demetrius, played by Jacques Charrier, arrives in a Paris of the future where, instead of the croaking voice of Alpha 60, all spoken directives are voiced in impeccable, seductive, female French. He stays in a hotel where pleasure models are provided for his companionship. The first of these, played by Mary Lou Tolo, is compliant but found to be too uncommunicative, so the man sends for a replacement. He next receives a literary model played by Anna Karina in her final collaboration with Godard. The film differs somewhat in its French and English versions. The French version does not follow Godard's stated preference, which was to apply color tintings to the original monochromatic photography. These shifts in color are actually noted on the soundtrack. These tintings are used in the American version, which also switches over into color negative to obscure an instance of Ms. Tolo's nudity, which is full frontally intact in the French version. As the story closes on a kiss between the two principals, the monochromatic photography flickers into full and rich color, which seems to offer a metaphor for the way this film ends in its spatial choreography between Eddie Constantine and Anna Karina. The Oldest Profession is available on Blu-ray and DVD from Kino Lorber, and I strongly recommend it to anyone with half an interest in Alphaville. At this point, Godard and Raoul Coutard give us another extended stroll through these hotel corridors, this one consisting of two shots, the first lasting one full minute. This scene gives composer Paul Misraki an opportunity to spread out with a wonderful, languorous waltz, whose 3-4 formality and ostinato insistence recalls some of the work Bernard Herrmann had done for Alfred Hitchcock. Beatrice? 
Noah, elle travaille dans les immeubles périphériques. Ici, elle ne fait que des remplacements. Vous avez entendu parler des pays extérieurs Non, jamais. Lemmy's bowing to caress the thigh of this pleasure model in a courtly yet almost obligatory way mirrors his first encounter with Krista Lang's character about 19 minutes into the film as he sees her leg being almost absent-mindedly fondled by a man eating popcorn. It may be indicative of his beginning to fall under the spell of this city and its ways, as happened to Henry Dixon before him. Natasha is awaiting Lemmy in his room, but her position within the room changes, darting from place to place like a memory as yet unconfirmed as a living person. J'avais très envie de vous revoir. Pas moi. Puisque vous êtes là, demandez-moi un petit déjeuner. Monsieur Johnson. Pardon. Je vais très bien, merci, je vous en prie. Moi aussi. Throughout this dialogue scene, filmed in matter-of-fact long shots, Godard inserts a series of beautifully modeled close-ups of Anna Karina, any one of them enough to make someone fall in love with her. It has something to do with the way light and shadow interplay on the gently rounded planes of her face. These represent the ways in which this vulnerable, corrupted, perverted girl is getting through the armor of Lemmy Caution. Je ne sais pas, on n'a pas voulu me donner l'Alpha 60. Non, pas votre numéro de contrôle. À l'hôtel. Le 344. 344. Nous vivons dans l'oubli de nos métamorphoses. Mais cet écho qui roule tout le long du jour, cet écho hors du temps, d'angoisse ou de caresse, sommes-nous prêts ou loin de notre conscience All that these two characters have in common are words and Lemmy advances their relationship to the next stage of a mutual understanding by presenting her with the copy of Capital de la Delour that was once the cherished belonging of Henry Dixon. Lemmy mentions that some lines in the book have been underlined, apparently put there by Henry to draw his eye immediately to those words he did not wish to forget, while stationed amid their abandonment. This book of poetry, therefore, is being proposed as opposite to the Bible of Alphaville, which Natasha will soon reveal is nothing more than a dictionary, serially reprinted as more and more of its most emotional and therefore dangerous words are subtracted from it. As Natasha reads aloud from the book, she too intuits the rhyming resonance of caution and conscience and the phrase the meaning of a glance, to which Godard has already begun to lend meaning with his close studies of Anna Karina's face. Knowing what we know about Eddie Constantine's discomfort with playing Lemmy Caution once again, and about Godard's brusque handling of him, 
It is tempting to see Godard's insistent pushing of him outside his comfort zones as having a desired result in the performance he gives. This is not the Lemmy caution we see in the earlier films, who is smooth and crude, a man almost always in control of his situations. This is a far more realistic caution, an irritable and seasoned spy who is aggravated by what this compromised young woman is making him feel. It raises the question of whether Lemmy is more suppressed here or in the world he's come from. Just as we feel this scene grow more serious, Godard throws us off balance with this amusing cameo by Jean-Pierre Léod, the young actor discovered by Francois Truffaut for his film The 400 Blows, who worked on this film as one of Godard's assistants. Natasha is unable to find the word conscience in her Bible. Earlier in the film, we saw Henry Dixon, in his dying breath, confusing Lemmy Caution's own surname with conscience. So this omission strikes an ominous chord. We feel that Alpha 60 might be on the verge of removing Lemmy himself from his strangest adventure. Speaking of Jean-Pierre Léod, he and Godard would go on to collaborate on other pictures. He plays another hotel bellboy in the short film Anticipation, and he also starred in Godard's 1967 feature La Chinoise. He then resumed working with Truffaut in Bed and Board, the third chapter of the Antoine Doinel series. This revelation about the nature of the Alphaville Bible rings a bell for Lemmy, and he finds amid Henry Dixon's notes a list of subtracted words, all of which point to an erosion of romantic sensibility and sentiment. Monsieur Johnson? Oui. At this moment in the film, Godard gives Natasha the oft-repeated words used by Vincent Price to woo women in Samuel Fuller's 1950 film, The Baron of Arizona. In that picture, Price's political and romantic swindler character always clinches the deal with a new woman by saying, I've known many women, but with you, I'm afraid. I mentioned the film's use of this line to Krista Fuller, and she wrote back to me, and I quote, Little did I know then, in January 65, that in September of the same year I would fall in love with Samuel Fuller, and yes, he was afraid as well, and so was I, end quote. Isn't that great? She went on to say, and I quote, Claude Chabrol, who had become my personal friend, was the first person to know when I fell in love with Sam and told me about his films. I had only seen Shock Corridor at the McMahon. Once I knew Sam, I caught up with all of his films, of course. Chabrol, Truffaut, and Godard had been PR agents at 20th Century Fox and therefore were familiar with Sam and got interested in other films he did away from Fox. You can see Anna Karina dressed like Angie Dickinson in China Gate at a certain moment in Pierrot Le Fou, end quote. 
So to Jean-Luc Godard, Sam Fuller's work was a kind of Bible to which he could return again and again for sustenance. Fuller would make a cameo in Pierrot Le Fou himself, in which he has an unforgettable and somehow relevant line of dialogue, quote, Film is like a battleground. Love, hate, action, violence, death. In a word, emotion, end quote. In 1972, Fuller would return the compliment by using Krista's scene from Alphaville as a flashback in his film Dead Pigeon on Beethoven Street, which Krista Fuller remembers as, quote, also an homage to Godard and Akim Tamirov, end quote. As Lemmy goads the brainwashed Natasha into resummoning the memory of the actual circumstances of her birth, we may be looking at a seminal moment in science fiction cinema, the template for all those scenes, in which someone involved with artificial intelligence, usually a man involved with a female android, finds it necessary to make it conscious of its own artificiality. The intentions behind this grilling may be tender, but the result is almost always brutal. By blocking this scene with Constantine pacing back and forth in front of the static Karina, we see a visual representation of her dazed reception of this repressed information, and Godard sidesteps any need for any editorial cutting or punctuation to lend dramatic urgency to this moment of revelation. Constantine's place within the mise-en-scene does the cutting. As Natasha's memories of the past come flooding back, her emotions are conveyed by a sudden surge of sentimental music from Paul Misraki, the musical cue closest to the unforgettable tragic music cues of Georges Delarue in 1963's Le Mépris, Contempt. At this point, as Natasha recounts her memories and explains her past, the two actors trade sides, this time with Constantine standing still, as Karina paces in front of him, but only once, because this is all the punctuation this moment requires. In the end, she steps back into frame on the same plane as he, they have arrived at understanding and at an agreement on what is real, what is true. Godard's ability to situate so much of his story in hotel rooms was responsible to a great degree for his being able to shoot the film on such a modest budget. $22,000 in 1965 would be equal to just under $200,000 in today's money. His first feature, Abu de Souf, Breathless, was shot for only 400,000 French francs, less than $6,000 in modern currency. It was shot entirely on locations in Paris and in a single small hotel room at the Hotel de Suède in the center of Paris. No, la volupté est une conséquence. 
Elle n'existe pas sans l'amour. Alors l'amour, c'est quoi Ta voix, tes yeux, tes mains, tes lèvres. And Godard cuts to an arriving police car. What follows is a remarkable tone poem, a sensual interplay of light, darkness, and the poetry of Paul Eloard. Qui revient. Un seul sourire pour nous deux. Par besoin de savoir, j'ai vu la nuit crier le jour, sans que nous changeons d'apparence. Ô bien-aimé de tous et bien-aimé d'un seul, en silence ta bouche a promis d'être heureuse. De loin en loin, dit la haine, de proche en proche, dit l'amour. Par la caresse, nous sortons de notre enfance. Je vois de mieux en mieux la forme humaine, comme un dialogue d'amoureux. Le cœur n'a qu'une seule bouche. Toutes les choses au hasard, tous les mots dits sans y penser, les sentiments à la dérive, les hommes tournent dans la vie. It's one of the most beautiful spellbinding sequences in the history of French cinema. Nicholas Rogue quoted this image in his 1983 film The Man Who Fell to Earth using David Bowie and Candy Clark. This sequence takes Lemmy and Natasha from a realm of alternating light and dark to one of shared darkness. And what is love, what is intimacy, if not a place where two souls, having found security with one another, can commune in darkness? It's not for nothing that Bertrand Tavernier included it in his three-hour documentary, My Journey Through French Cinema. When Godard cuts from the darkness to Natasha holding the book at a window in the daylight, she seems to be pressing it to herself like a love letter. But the title of the book is also looking out the window to the reflected city beyond, to Alphaville, this capital of sorrow, this capital of pain. This bathroom scene implies that the preceding poetry scene was a metaphor for sexual communion and that these two were freshening up after spending the night together. With this in mind, we realize what a brilliant conceit the sequence was because it made the communion between these two characters acceptable and believable in ways that a more bluntly filmed love scene involving Eddie Constantine and Anna Karina could ever be. Avec les pays We're about to see a crudely manipulated image of Professor Von Braun, implying that he is walking into the room with these armed stooges. Perhaps Howard Vernon was not available to walk in on that day, 
Or perhaps Godard was using this image to show who and what these intruders represent. Natasha responds with a joke, which in Alphaville is something of a revolutionary act. There is an opportunity here for an exciting car sequence, but Godard and Roel Coutard merely roll their camera over the glassy surface of the Esso Tower, or control center, resolving the image on a screeching sound effect in a shot of the parked police car. In this second interrogation of Lemmy by Alpha 5, or whichever station of Alpha 60 this happens to be, I think we can see some of this film's influence on David Cronenberg's early work specifically his short film Stereo and Crimes of the Future, made just a few years after Alphaville in 1969 and 1970. All of these films pose a challenge of delineating human emotion by charting and ritualizing its suppression by a technological framework. I mentioned the influence of William S. Burroughs on the film earlier, but it's important to remember that his works came at the story from a completely different angle, he took what I guess we could call an anti-Reichian stance. Wilhelm Reich believed that people were repressed by something virally attached to society, which caused them to toughen up and resist emotion in order to survive. And he developed various treatments to break this armor down and allow emotion to vent, which he believed was the only path to true health. Burroughs, on the other hand, wrote about humanity and language as viruses. And although he was a human writer and one of our greatest satirists, he was not on the side of those viruses. Unlike most of Godard's other films, which tend to be revered by advocates of the new wave and experimental cinema, Alphaville is one of the few to have been continually embraced by the counterculture. For all its steely, spirally architecture, it armors a very simple and tender message. It's a pseudo-Reichian breakdown of the armor surrounding Natasha's heart, and it blames the existence of that armor on a parent, which was very much in keeping with the social dynamics of the late 1960s, a time of teenage runaways and rebellion. As times have changed, Alphaville has been fluidly redefined as punk, techno, and cyberpunk. Every time someone makes a new Blade Runner or Matrix film, Alphaville is rediscovered by a new generation. In one of the stranger results of this following, it was announced in 1979 that Alphaville was going to be remade by the New York underground filmmaker Amos Poe, with Blondie's Debbie Harry starring as Natasha, 
And as Lemmy Caution, King Crimson founder and guitarist Robert Fripp. It was to have been the acting debut for both of them, but after shots from a photo session appeared in a few magazines like Cream and Rolling Stone, the project was abandoned, though it had reportedly been approved by Godard. Debbie Harry did go on to a part-time acting career, notably in David Cronenberg's Videodrome, proving that all of this is connected in some strange way. Returning to the scene at hand, the riddle that Lemmy poses to Alpha has no question mark, no why. He tells Alpha 60 that he's thinking of something whose past represents its future. It goes forth, he says, in a straight line, yet it ends by coming full circle. Lemmy responds to the computer's promise that it will solve the problem by saying that if it does, it will destroy its meaning by which I suspect that Godard may be pointing to cinema itself, an admission that Alphaville has a debt to the films that came before, even if it is willfully unlike those films. By moving in a straight line, that is, toward the future, it will eventually come full circle. If this is true, he may also be telling us that too much explanation of what it is, what it intends to say, will take all of the magic out of it. While we cannot say with certainty, we may suppose because supposing leaves the subject the autonomy in which to be mysterious. But do not explain, because explanation is the exterminator of art. You might think that Godard chose to shift here to negative film imagery to accentuate disorientation, but look closely. Lemmy is seeking out a coach to take him to Professor Von Braun, whose name, whose real name is soon revealed as Leonard Nosferatu. And when Hutter is taken by carriage to the castle of Count Orlock in F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu, the positive image turns to negative as it makes the second leg of that journey with Count Orlock himself as the driver. I think Bob Rafelson and Jack Nicholson may have been paying homage to this factory scene in their 1968 film Head, starring the Monkees. In the upcoming dialogue scene between Howard Vernon and Eddie Constantine, Vernon says, Men like you will soon be extinct. You will become worse than dead. You will become a legend. In Head, a scientist tells the Monkees, The tragedy of your times, my young friends, is that you may get exactly what you want.
Allons, monsieur Caution, que puis-je encore faire pour vous Je vois que les nouvelles vont vite ici. Oui, parce que nous entrons dans la civilisation de la lumière. Finally, our two adversaries come face to face in the final showdown. Professor von Braun describes his coming triumph as the civilization of light, which points out that light is by no means the birthright of only the most righteous of two opponents. Light is subjective and therefore wholly available to the forces of evil because they do not see themselves as evil but as bringers of their own kind of light. It is therefore only a word in the final analysis and yet words are worth fighting for. When von Braun promises Lemmy gold and women if he remains in Alphaville to take charge of another galaxy, this is more than a promise meant to appeal to his avarice. It's a frank admission that if he remains, his thoughts will be regularly monitored, audited, invaded, abused, and exploited, because gold and women are the two weaknesses Lemmy admitted to in the high-tech confessional of the Alpha Five. Somehow those two words imprint themselves on our memory out of all the spoken words in this movie and they need only to be spoken once again to posit us in that previous scene. That's the power of words. Regardez-vous, les hommes de votre espèce n'existeront bientôt plus. Vous allez devenir quelque chose de pire que la mort. Vous allez devenir une légende, Monsieur Lemmy Cochon. Oui, j'ai peur de la mort. Et pour un modeste agent secret, c'est un élément normal, comme, comme le whisky. Et j'ai bu toute ma vie. Vous ne voulez pas, monsieur le professeur, toujours pas revoir les pays extérieurs Au revoir, monsieur Cochon. Professor von Braun's dying promise to Lemmy that he's going to die into something worse than death, that he's going to die into legend, is a promise that Godard would keep. In the Fond de Siècle essay film about the collapse of the Iron Curtain, Germany, year 90, 90, Godard would use Eddie Constantine's Lemmy Caution as a kind of legend observing the changes made by a unified Europe like a silent ghost of conscience, mourning the equally silent erasure of himself, his colleagues, and their missions from the history books. Indeed, this death into legend is also evident here, as Lemmy Caution vaults from French popular cinema into the abstractions of the French New Wave. There is an aspect to the core idea of Lemmy Caution's leap from pulp fiction to art cinema that mirrors, or at least evokes, the leap made by Gilgamesh, the ancient king of Samaria, into myth and legend. After all, it's Gilgamesh in the ancient epic poem who cautions his fellow men to forget death and seek life. In making that exclamation, he is speaking from a place of legend as a once-living alpha male who became a legend, a hero, the subject of statues, friezes, and epic poetry. The message is, read, be informed by what you read, but remember to live, to live in ways not available to legends who died so that you might live. I mention Gilgamesh because he is invoked by another project of similar mind dating from approximately the same time, 
but a season or two earlier. I'm referring to Harlan Ellison's 1964 Outer Limits teleplay, Demon with a Glass Hand. This teleplay also combines the seemingly incompatible formulae of film noir and science fiction, and Ellison's script specifically references Gilgamesh in its closing narration as it describes a man, quote, without love, without friendship, alone, neither man nor machine, waiting, waiting for the day he will be called to free the humans who gave him mobility, movement, but not life, end quote. Here, Goddard cleverly cuts from a portion of the car chase photographed during clear weather to another portion shot during a snowfall by punctuating them with the word Nord, as earlier dialogue has told us that snow is common to Alphaville's northern territories, so no continuity error. But back to the point I was in the process of making. With all this in mind about Lemmy's status as a legend, we can begin to understand why Godard was insistent that cameraman Raoul Coutard light Eddie Constantine to accentuate his defects, to make him look hardened and chewed up by his years of living as a spy, beneath the surface of the life that the rest of us freely inhabit, who has become to us more of a remote epic hero than a living man, like someone carved out of stone, out of the nitrate we might see projected in one of the old Cinerama museums. As I said in passing earlier, Lemmy Caution is in some ways a golem. He was born to bear the burden of humanity, and that burden is legendary. In his line of work, he's one step away from death at all times. But in this strange adventure, the odds are even steeper. He's one step away from love. It's an emotion that stands to free both the hero and the heroine. Incidentally, this is a struggle between two characters also found in Ken Russell's film Altered States, based on a script by Patty Chayefsky. You'll notice that in escaping from the control center, Lemmy has disguised himself by wearing the sunglasses worn by Professor Von Braun. A short time after making this film, Eddie Constantine was hired to star in a film called Carte sur Table, meaning Cards on the Table, but released to American television as Attack of the Robots. Directed by the Spanish filmmaker Jesus Franco, from a script by Franco and Jean-Claude Carrière, it contains several allusions to Alphaville and pits Constantine's G-Man character Al Pereira against an army of men and women whose minds are controlled by special dark eyeglasses. This film is being released by Kino Lorber at about the same time as Alphaville, and I do a commentary for that film as well, so I encourage you to seek it out. In Alphaville, there are no such overt signs of the people whose minds are under the control of Alpha 60. But with Professor Von Braun dead and his control center now disabled, the people of Alphaville are cast askew. We see them clinging desperately to walls, unable to stand erect. And when Lemmy discovers Natasha in this sound booth, she too is flailing about. Here, Anna Karina gets to demonstrate some of her abilities as a dancer. This sequence conveys some of the tragedy of similar romantic stories involving mental disease or madness like Robert Rosen's Lilith or Ingmar Bergman's Through a Glass Darkly or Face to Face, especially with the images played over Paul Misraki's moving musical cue. 
as effective in some ways as Georges Delarue's music for Les Mépris. But this tragic cue interrupted a few times to suggest a mishap within the construction of the film itself here gives way to more vertiginous music fraught with stabs of urgency. This with the accompanying image of a woman clinging desperately to a wall and Anna Karina tottering toward us through the corridor gives this moment the feel that the city itself has begun spinning like a Catherine wheel, though the camera remains absolutely still, absolutely objective. Even as Lemmy carries Natasha away like the hero carrying the heroine out of a flaming castle in an Edgar Allan Poe picture, she continues to flail, a prisoner of her own subjective reality and its holocaust. In the words of Jean-Luc Godard, 1965, quoted in the Los Angeles Times, I don't consider the computer age a real threat to our civilization, but we dare not start acting like computer-controlled robots. We must pay careful attention to the human emotion that can still prompt the three words, I love you, which end my film. There is a basic truth in them that stands guard against a mutation of the human person, end quote. If you find this idea corny, perhaps Lemmy needs to rescue you as well. As the couple drive away, leaving the techno-ravaged city to heal itself, we see the curving lights along this stretch of highway, and they evoke something celestial, science fiction-y, like cars from 50 years ago driving along the rings of Saturn. Eddie Constantine never really escaped the role of Lemmy Caution. He was still at it in 1989 when he made a TV movie called Le Retour de Lemmy Caution, The Return of Lemmy Caution. And then there was the reunion with Godard, Germany, year 90, 90. He spent his last 10 years or so as a novelist and then died on February 25th, 1993, at the age of 84. Now we come to our final moments. Notice that once Natasha snaps out of her delirium, we never see her savior again. Not even when she observes that he's looking at her strangely. We aren't shown that look. All that remains to be accomplished now is work that she must do herself. Possibly Godard ran out of time and couldn't give Eddie Constantine his close-up, but more likely perhaps he understood that film noir heroes are like movie cowboys. They never reap the rewards of their self-sacrifice. They always move on one way or another. The important thing is, once Natasha realizes how to express her inner feelings without fear or constraint, let me caution has served his purpose. And the lights above the road, bent just a moment ago, now extend in one long straight line toward tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow. I'm Tim Lucas, and I thank you for watching with me.